Hello everyone. I want to welcome you to our fifth episode on our series on faith. This message will be titled, Man's Deadliest Weapon. Again, this message will be titled, Man's Deadliest Weapon. Our scripture reading will be taken from the book of James. James 3 verses 1 through 12. James 3 verses 1 through 12. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to brittle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are also large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and, a, and, and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a word of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body, and sets in on the fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we blessed our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus, no spring yields both salt, water, and fresh. Many centuries ago, Socrates, an optimistic rationalist, stated that reason was the only path to knowledge, and that humanity could be perfected not by external influence of a divine creator, but by the acquisition of true knowledge. He also stated that evil would eventually disappeared from an educated world. In his famous dictum, he stated, he who knows what good is, will do good. In making that claim, Socrates was referring to the evolution of man from a, prim from a primitive state to a modern man. The irony is that rather than his optimistic outlook, 
of the state of man's evolution, Socrates should have been lamenting over the depravity of man. Since the historic fall, man has been in a degenerative state. As the evidence of modern archaeology has shown that religion has not have not evolved upwards, but degenerated from monotheism to pantheism and polytheism, and then from these to animisms and atheisms. As Paul tells us in Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they neither glorify him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and darkened in their foolish hearts. Since Socrates made his infamous humanistic claim, the world has experienced World War I, which has accounted for approximately 17 million lives, followed by World War II, which has accounted for 80 million deaths. And how could we forget 1945 with the atomic bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Unlike Socrates claimed that he who knows what good will good is will do good. We have seen the degeneration of man's knowledge regarding his maker as becoming a hindrance to sustained humanity. Because when the creatures stand autonomous from the Creator. The finite creature has no basis for his ethics and morals. When ethics and morals become sociological law, that is a law based on majority consensus. The unfortunate impact is increased immorality manifested in man's humanity towards man. We see the manifestation of man's inhumanity towards man not only on a micro level, but also on a macro level. On a micro level, we see people trying to destroy each other through physical violence. But the most prominent way to be destructive towards each other is through the use of speech, the tongue. On a macro level, we see nations attempting to dominate each other with destructive weapons of war. The world always seems to be on the brink of war, and the more autonomous man becomes, the more he moves away from the Creator, the more deadly his weapons of mass destruction seems to morph. The danger cannot be overlooked. Pain and suffering is the hallmark of mortal men. Pain and suffering comes disguised in many forms. It can come from man-made destructive weapons like nuclear weapons or atomic bombs. Pain and suffering comes from the bad economists who fail to look at the long-term consequences of policies and simply focus on immediate effects. Pain and suffering comes 
When lenders provide loans to borrowers knowing that they will not be able to pay it back at the going interest rates. Pain and suffering comes when some poor person puts up his farm as collateral and the crop fails. Pain and suffering comes when a dictator sprayed mustard gas on his own people. Pain and suffering comes so that sometime we cry like William Shakespeare Macbeth. Life's but a, a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Pain and suffering come in many forms, but I say to you today that the deadliest weapon that man has at his disposal to inflict pain and suffering is the tongue. Countless lives has been destroyed by the tongue more than anything in life, especially in an age of social media where everyone has a platform and in many instances they can remain invisible and yet become very destructive. A tongue can be used as a deadly weapon or it can be used as, as an instrument for good. Will you use your tongue to inspire hope to the hopeless? Will you use your tongue to tell the man of his lost condition? Will you use your tongue to tell men that Christ is coming soon to judge the living and the dead? Will you use your tongue to praise God for his goodness and mercy? Will you use your tongue to sing the song of the redeemed? Jesus shall reign wherever sun does a successful journey run. His kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Will you use your tongue for the furtherance of the gospel? Now let's see what James has to say about the use of the tongue. Historical record indicates that the epistle of James was written to individuals who were concerned about persecution that was coming their way because of their faith in Jesus Christ. James was concerned about their suffering. But he was also concerned about the genuineness of their faith. In essence, he was saying to believers that it is far more important that you have real faith than about your suffering. But how could his readers determine if they had real faith? James gave them three marks. Controlling the tongue caring for the needy, and avoiding worldliness. The book of James is a book of action. Faith is not something intangible that does nothing. Faith without works is dead. 
faith that links with God and changes every part of life. Faith must also have its influence over the tongue. This little member of the body reads an entire Bible chapter. It comes like dynamite comes in a small package. The tongue has tremendous power in relations to its size. The word helm in verse 4 is a rudder, the part of the ship that steers it through the water. We often think our words are unimportant, but the word the wrong word can direct the listener into the wrong paths. An idle word, a questionable story, a half-truth, or a deliberate lie could change the course of life and lead to its destruction. On the other hand, the right word used by the Spirit direct the soul out of sin and into salvation. Just as the horse needs a guide and the rudder needs a pilot, so now the tongue needs the Lord to control them. Tongue has the power to destroy the, it's the fire and the animal. The size of the tongue does not determine this value or, or power. Tongue is a little member in the body, but it can cause great destruction. How can the tongue loves, how the tongue loves to boast. How great a forest the little fire kindles. Each year many thousands of acres of timber are lost because of the careless campers or, or smokers. A little flame can set a whole forest on fire. Tongue is a flame. It can, through lies and gossips and heated words, set a whole family or church on fire. And the sooth from the fire can defile everyone involved. When the Spirit came at Pentecost, there were tongues from heaven to enable the Christians to witness. But it is also possible for the tongue to set, in, to set fire for hell. James also compare the tongue to a fierce and, and poisonous beast that cannot be tamed. No man can tame a tongue. Only God can control it through his spirit. Tongue is relentless, unruly. What poison it can spread. A spiritual tongue is the only medicine to control an unruly tongue. How has this unruly, restless tongue changed the course of history? As an educator, I'm acutely aware of the impact of words and short-term and long-term impact by teaching can have on young, impressionable minds and so I do not take it lightly, the enormous responsibility of being an educator. 
James understood the huge responsibility of being a teacher. So in James 3.1, he says, My brethren, let it not, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that you shall receive the stricter judgment. Now, why, why did James think it necessary to include this? I believe it's fair to say that he wasn't trying to make it harder for churches to find teachers. But rather, he was warning his readers about the terrible possibility of taking up the task of teaching with the wrong motives. The big picture that James is trying to paint is that the power of the tongue has changed and can change the course of nations and the entire world. How has the power of the tongue changed the course of nations and the entire world? At some point during our studies, we might have studied B.F. Skinner. Skinner is the founder of a school of psychology called Radical Behaviorism. He is well known for the Skinner box, as we can recall. It's a box where rats can be trained to a very sophisticated level of behavior called classical conditioning. Essentially, classical conditioning says you behave the way you do because certain behaviors have been rewarded and others have been extinguished. The net result is that you are the result of your conditioning. In his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, in his, his book, Beyond Freedom and Dignity, appeared on New York Times bestseller list 18 times. The irony is that Beyond Freedom and Dignity is a, is a nonsense because there's no freedom as you are the product of your conditioning. The effect of the scientific revolution of, of philosophy is that science was overtaking an understanding of what it means to be human. It was an abuse of science making it explain more than it is capable ridding individuals of value of any idea of right and wrong, essentially reducing you to a rat. So who inspired the thoughts and teaching of Skinner? Skinner was inspired by John Watson. He was a behaviorist. John Watson was inspired by a fellow named John Dewey. John Dewey was popular in the education circle. He is known as the inventor of modern education theory, and he's also signatory to the Humanistic Manifesto of 1933. John Dewey was generally influenced by George Hegel, known for a dialectic approach to history and education. This is the chain that connects connects Skinner in the philosophical ideas and his ideas are impacting us today. 
when James says the power of the tongue has changed and can change the course of nations. And the entire world, it's imperative that we understand the chain from Hegel to Skinner and how their teaching has changed the course of history. Francis Schaeffer puts it this way. Imagine that Hegel was sitting one day in a local tavern, surrounded by his friends conversing on the philosophical issues of the day. Suddenly, he put down his mug of beer in, on the table and said, I have a new idea. From now on, let's think in this way instead of thinking in terms of cause and effect. What we really has is a thesis, and opposite it's an antithesis, with the answer to the relationship, not a horizontal movement of cause and effect, but a synthesis. Schaefer continues his illustration. Now suppose that a hard-headed German businessman had been standing by and overheard his remark. He might have thought, how absurd and impractical but he could not have been further from the truth because whether Hegel himself or those listening understood it to be the case when Hegel pronounced this idea he changed the world let's just summarize what Hegel was saying and so we can understand how his teaching changed not just Europe but the entire world so Hegel sees life as always in conflict, where A cannot be non-A. His teaching can be described as the dialectic triad, where there is a great idea, a great thesis that dominates people's thinking but is contradicted by some alternate idea that seems to be inconsistent with it and the two could never be reconciled. We think that if A is true then non-A cannot be true. But Hegel says no, 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 A and non-A can both be true. So Hegel is considered the father of relativism because A and non-A can both be true. We don't see them until the conflict between them produces synthesis. So the synthesis is revealed in the clash is revealed in the clash between these ideas. So this so the thesis and the antithesis produce the synthesis is the engine of progress, our evolution in the story of human life down through history. Essentially all the complicated stuff. Hegel's dialectic approach to reasoning over the course of human history has ushered God out of the universe as the world lives and behaves as though there is no absolute. All is relative. The British-born naturalist Charles Darwin took, Gregor's, took Greg, Gregory Hegel's dialectic approach in the development of his theory of evolution. In his dialectic approach, there is a struggle for survival. Eventually, the superior species win the struggle. 
Hitler was a strong proponent of Darwin's theory of evolution and with his vision to create a superior nation. He adapts his, this teaching into slaughtering of six million Jews. In a real sense, my friends, we see Hegel's teaching continues to transform our world through racial tensions, degeneration of ethics and morals, man's inhumanity to man, inequality, lack of belief in the absolute God who created all things. Hegel is a constant dark presence in our lives. And so I say, yes, the power of the tongue has changed the course of history. It was Patrick Henry's cry, give me liberty or give me death. It became the rallying, rallying call of revolutionaries as they discussed their state strategy against the British. Tongue is like a fire destructive. Rome in its conquest and its quest to become the great unchallenged power. Cato, the elder, always ended every state meeting with the statement, Carthage must be destroyed. Carthage was destroyed during the Tunic Wars. So the world is hijacked by, by a terrible pandemic of COVID-19. And as we look around our city, we are overwhelmed with horrific images of bodies placed in cooling trucks because hospitals are overwhelmed with bodies. At the same time, cemeteries are not having enough plots to bury the dead. The situation is so trying that in many instances families are unable to say goodbye to their loved ones. The situation is dire. But I tell you that as horrific as this terrible, terrible bacterium is, the terrible apparel of the tongue untamed by the power of God causes more destruction than in any bacteria. Tongue causes death, destruction in our city, as the untamed tongue has lost sense of ethics and morals. The untamed tongue has works in subtle ways, resulting in moral and spiritual death, suffocating truth and meaning and beauty out of the city and the wider society. A whole society is threatened by the untamed tongue as it become a fog that seeps into the mind and impressionable minds, into the young and impressionable minds. The fog carries the message that all is relative. There is no absolute. People can do whatever they want with total disregard for the natural law, that God exists and that, there, that, that he is there. Judges 21, 25, the Bible says, In those days there was no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. O oh, saints of God, in the final analysis, the Israelites found themselves prisoners in Babylon because they did not use their tongue to praise God, but they did what they saw fit. 
I'm concerned that our society's not on the same path as the Israelites. Let me correct that we are in worse condition than the Israelites, as we have the Old and the New Testament, and understand more about God, and yet we fail to acknowledge Him as God. His merciful love and grace is why we have not become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Liberalism has infiltrated the churches, that now the churches teaches a soothing message. Felt need rather than being decisive, as Jeremiah not only tells lost souls about the love of God, but he also warns them that of the judgment of God. There's dead in our, death in our city because of the untamed tongue, when the only original religion taught in schools is atheism. Real sense Hegel's teaching planted as a simple mustard seed has now grown to a giant oak waving freely in the wind and so many have taken shelter under its branches. I believe this is this is what Peter foresaw when 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 they say the devil when he says the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Devil's teaching have left mankind languishing in the wilderness of humanism and relativism. Yes, eagle is always with us. He's a constant reminder of the power of the untamed tongue and the destructive impact it can have and does have on societies. The tongue is a fire indeed. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue can devour the whole body and mind. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. When the tongue is set on fire, we see destructive effects of it. Families torn apart by uncontrolled tongues. Words spoken in anger between husbands and wives. Harsh words spoken by Christians to one another. An untamed tongue is full of deadly poison. Critical tongues have closed, closed church doors. And I say never allow a negative or crucial word to pass your lips. But there is a thrilling possibility of a God-controlled tongue. You may have become despondent you look at the direction that our nation is taking. We have moved from a nation that was built on the principle of reformation that God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and now that worldview is now in the minority. So I say to you today, saints of God, if you have traveled away from home and now have taken up residence and shelter, under the destructive ideologies of eagle and have been teaching disastrous message of relativism i say to you today just like the prodigal son who left home and found himself in a desperate situation ah merciful and loving god patiently and lovingly awaits your return home O child of god return to a master 
relearned at his feet the message of the good news of salvation. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Will you do that today? Will you abandon that which is temporary and embrace eternity? Will you do that today? Romans 10.9 tells us, Will you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord? Will you change a destructive tongue to a loving, a loving tongue? It's an opportunity for witnessing. Will you use the destructive tongue for higher purpose? Teach a class. Train our children in the way of the Lord. Speak a tender word to a troubled soul. Speak words to bring peace between enemies. Telling friends and associates of, of God's love for them. Will you transform in the destructive tongue to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? Will you let your mouth be filled with his praise? Will you do that? History has shown us how God changed the tongues of men. Moses, Moses, stuttering, then speak to Pharaoh. Let my people go. Peter, cursing, then preaching on Pentecost. God transformed him to become the rock upon which the church is built. Paul consenting to Stephen's death, then telling the good news. I say to you today, submit your tongue to God. See how many are helped. Will you do that? Would you allow God to change your unruly tongue to give him praise. Will you do that? Would you allow God to change your unruly tongue, tell man and people of their lost souls? Will you do that? Will you God allow God to change your unruly tongue, tell your brother that you are his keeper? Will you allow God to change your unruly tongue to bring hope to the hopeless? Will you do that? Will you do that? Let's pray. Lord, we cry out to you. Make haste to us. Give here to our voices when we cry out to you, let our pride be set before you as incense. Let lifting up our hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord God, over our mouths. Keep watch over the doors of our lips. Do not incline our hearts to do any evil thing. To practice wicked works 
with men who work iniquity. And do not let us eat of their delicacies. Hear our prayer, O God. Amen. Hello everyone, I want to uh, welcome you to another episode in our series on faith. Today's message will be entitled, Touch the Hem of His Garment. Our reading will be taken from the book of Luke. Luke 8 verses 40 to 48 On the other side of the lake the crowds welcomed Jesus but they had been waiting for him then a man named Jairus a leader of the local synagogue came and fell at Jesus's feet pleading with him to come home with him his only daughter who was only about 12 years old was dying as Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she couldn't find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell on her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him. And that she'd been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Why are we so obsessed with celebrity? It's a generally accepted truth that our society has become, has a strong obsession with celebrity. Why this obsession with celebrity? Platforms like Instagram has magnified the visibility of what it means to be a celebrity through followers. There are individuals with followers that exceeds the population of many nations. Social media has created a Frankenstein monster in Kim Kardashian who turned Beyonce into a golden calf, false idol who many of us are only too eager to kneel before. Question is why? Why are so many determined to worship a 
at the altar of celebrity. Why are so many so desperate to turn men into gods? We have made celebrities out of pastors and spiritual leaders. Instead of feeding the hungry traveler who stops by the bread of hope, that is the inherency of the scripture, they have sadly given the weary traveler a mouthful of pebbles seasoned with liberal theology. The arguments put forth for a strong obsession of celebrity of many and varied. One such argument is that we love celebrities because they are an integral part of our society. In other words, they made it in a worldview we are so entrenched in. In a sense, we live our lives vicariously through the lives of others. Essentially, we all want to live a different and better life. Being engrossed in the life of a celebrity makes us feel that we're participating in and taking part in their glory. It's undeniable that celebrities do have an impact on our society. But long before our modern celebrities, which in many instances give you a sense of false belonging, there was a celebrity who walked this earth in the first century for whom men and women flocked to because they, they witnessed him positively change lives. I want to share with you today a celebrity who caused real change in people's lives, who sought him through a word or a touch. Celebrity to whom I referred to is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He established authority over the visible world, over nature. His authority is not only over human nature, but over everything in the cosmos. So when this one can stand up and address the storm, and immediately it listens, it reminds us that his that this one is sovereign over the entire created order. When we encounter, when he encountered a man who's possessed of a thousand demons, and they are terrified by him, and they plead with him, please do not send us into the abyss. They are utterly at his disposal. He can command them as he will. Here in our reading, we see two stories combined. I'm calling this his authority in the church. This is the remarkable account that we have this today, which is two miracles intertwined. One is the synagogue ruler Jairus coming to Jesus because of his concern and fear for his daughter who was at the point of death and at the same time he was interrupted in trip. The synagogue by a woman who just reached out and touched the hem of his garment, hoping for healing and for those two stories are intentionally joined together. Not because they happened together historically, historically 
because they stand in a sense for the great ministry of the church, the great exercise of the power of Christ in the church, which takes place in twofold way, twofold way, word and touch. And in a real sense, we have two healing accounts, one from his word and one from his touch. And those who taken, those two taken together, tells us of the authority of Christ, especially among his people. We read that account in Luke 40 to the end of the chapter. And verse 40 says, as he was returning, the crowd warmly welcomed Jesus because they were waiting for him. Jesus was not always welcomed. And Luke says there came a man named Jairus, and this one was a ruler of the synagogue. This is one of the relative few times that a personal name is attached to you. Did not hear a name for the woman who was washing the feet of Jesus with her tears. Oftentimes these people come into the scene and are left anonymous. This man is named, probably because he was an important individual. He was Jehirus. There might have been some name recognition among the people who eventually read the Gospel of Luke. He was a ruler of the synagogue. This is the first time in Luke that somebody from the upper echelon of the Jewish culture, the Jewish society, came to Jesus favorably. Jesus has dealt with the leaders. He has dealt with the people who were the kind of the upper crust, but until this point, they, they've all been negative. These have always been negative encounters. This is the first time a man comes who is prestige, who has honor in the community. He is a synagogue leader, and he comes to plea, comes pleading with Jesus for favor, for benefit. It's the first time it happens. It speaks to the idea that gradually, of course, Jesus and the message was reaching deeply more and more into every tier of the Jewish world as it was at that time. The fact that he was a synagogue leader is to say that he was an, an elected leader. He was elected by the leaders means he was a man who was respected and honored and viewed as someone with an, an impeccable integrity and knowledge and wisdom. He had this particular favor, favorable status. He is called a ruler. He was the one who would oversee the operation of the synagogue. But sometimes, you know, can be a ruler and still be helpless. And that's the problem with our poor Jairus. He is a ruler, but he also now a father. And in connection with the father role he has, he has no power. His rule is not going to help him. 
And so he comes, and in spite of his status, he's willing to prostrate himself and humble himself. Not embarrassed in doing so because the desire of his heart overrules any concern he has for reputation. And so his two roles, he's a ruler and he's a father. We're impressed that a ruler could engage, would engage in this kind of prostration before Jesus because of his concern for his daughter. Luke tells us that his daughter and his only begotten to him was only 12 years old and she was at the point of death. Only Luke tells us that the daughter was the only child. It's akin to Christ being the only begotten son of the father. It's a word that stands for deeply cherished. Some of us are parents, our grandparents, and we know that children has a special place in our hearts, unlike any other. It's deeply abiding concern for a child, but even more when it's your only child. There's a kind of intensity of affection that all vested in that one person. You know, when you think 12 years old in reference to the child, it's a fairly short time. She has a whole life ahead of her. But when you think 12 years to the woman, she has been suffering for a long time. Isn't it interesting how the 12 has different meaning depending on how it shows up here? Jesus was following and the crowd was pressing him. This was the rock star treatment. He's going to the house of the synagogue ruler. And the crowd just wants to get a piece of him. The way people can sometimes be when they are around celebrity. They want to reach out and touch him. They want to get a piece of him. A thread from his cloak or something like that. Uh, we tend to be that way when we are around superstars. That's the kind of treatment that Jesus is getting. This is the kind of high point of his ministry. His popularity. Everybody wants to see him. Everybody wants to get close to him. So the crowd is sort of closing in on him. And making him. Making even him even walking along a little difficult. And so that's the picture we have. And then, in that setting, is the interesting description of a woman being in a flow of blood from 12 years from which no one is able to heal her. What she's suffering from is a problem with her menstrual flow. Here is a woman in horrific circumstances. First, she has this problem that has been plaguing her now for 12 solid years. That in itself would be a fair amount of miseries. There is weakness and suitability to other problems. And all of that being plaguing her on top of that, she is also based on the standards and regulations of the Jewish culture. Of the first century viewed 
as ceremony, ceremony and unclean. Now, that does not refer to the menstrual cycle, but the, the, the but in any bodily fluid, there's a kind of details in the book of Leviticus. When is a person unclean, which means they have to go through all kind of regular regulatory washing and so on in order to be restored to a state of ceremonial purity so that they can approach the temple. When a person is unclean, they're not supposed to be in contact with others. They were supposed to be in isolation. This woman is acting illegally right now. She's not supposed to be in the crowd because under the rules of the Old Testament, anyone who touched her and anyone she touched eventually, even, even unwittingly, was going to be contaminated by having come in contact with someone who's unclean. And so she knows that she's out on a limb. She's feeling that already. She does not want to be discovered. We don't know how well known she is in the community. Obviously, Capranium was a, a, a small-sized town, but not that big, so it's possible people knew who she was and she covered herself. She's under the radar. And Think about what she has gone through. She's in a crowd and everyone wants to touch Jesus. She's having to muscle her way through this. What was in her mind to do this? She believed if she could just kind of touch Jesus. Doesn't want to be discovered. Just touch him, maybe. Maybe, she says. She's way too embarrassed. Tap him on the shoulder and says, here's my problem, could you heal me? She couldn't do that. She'd never do that. But she's hoping maybe just this touch is going to be the means of her healing. And so she comes. She has this problem. She has spent all her living on physicians and had not gotten any better for it hadn't gotten any better for her. Just because your doctor does not mean you can fix everything that walks through the door. Sometimes there are problems, tragically, uh, that is beyond the power of human will. And verse 44 says, so she approached him from behind. This is very important. Not to be discovered and touch the end of his tassel. Or barely touch the end of his garment and immediately the flow of her blood was stopped. She knew immediately, immediately that something had happened. It must have been a terrifying and joyful moment for her, for she knew something had happened to her. She's hoping, of course, now to turn around and sneak out. It's like finding a little treasure she's hoping to escape and contemplate on this later. But no such luck for her. And Jesus says, Who touched me? Can you imagine her terror? She just reached out to touch him. She knows something had happened and immediately stops. 
who touched me? Can you imagine? That's enough for heart failure. Right on the spot. Just the stark terror of having that happened. Who touched me? Well, everybody protests. This is funny. Everybody denied it. Even though Jesus was just pressed by all these people. Peter spoke up and, and says, Lord, the crowd is pressing and throgging at you and you're asking who touched you? Jesus responds, someone touched me because I felt power went out from me. That is where he paused and we wonder. That is where we pause and we wonder. What is that exactly? All of these people have been touching him. Everyone wants a little piece of Jesus, you know. And they were trying to get a little contact with him and so on. And all of a sudden this one hand, this one finger reached out and out of the crowd to touch him. And he knows it. Powers go out, and of course we hear we that he says, Wow, there was something different about that touch. What was it? And we're advised as the story unfolds that the thing that was different is that this was a touch of faith. But what kind of faith was it? You would have to say, and in fact, quite a few commentators note that this borders on the kind of superstitious faith. It's not the way you normally do it. This is on the edges, the very border of the right way to come to Jesus, just hoping to touch his garment. In fact, Matthew seems so concerned about telling the story this way that he does not have the woman healed until after Jesus turns around and pronounces her healed. But she was healed at the moment of touch. And so what does that say to us? Generally, it's taken as a great affirmation that Christ's ministry among his people, his ministry in the church, if he can read the invisible ink here, is his ministry in the church is part of a ministry of touch. This is one of the great things of how we come to church and only to hear the word of God, not only to hear the word of God, but as it were to be touched by Christ. And the sacrament that is Christ is reaching out and contacting us in our fleshly early kind of existence because we need that. How much we need a human contact. How often do we shake hands? How often do we embrace? How often do we need physical kind of contact? How important it is sometimes for the pastor not to only say a word but to touch. Although today with our COVID-19 situation that has become quite difficult. But all throughout the history of the church Laying out of hand, touching has been such an important part of it. Part of the lesson of this is that as we come to church, 
As we come to worship, we should come something like this woman. When we come, when we go to church and we break bread, a piece of that bread up, or maybe it should be like that of a woman, that woman, reaching out as it, as if touching the helm of Jesus' garment. And as we do so in faith, power goes out. There is something that really does happen. It's not just a memorial. It's not just a nice thought. That this is something where there is an actual infusion of his grace into our lives. It's called the means of grace. The other little subtlety that is equally mysterious what did Jesus feel? He says, I felt go out from me. He felt weak in the knees. What happened there exactly? There's an idea I think he can argue it biblically successfully that when Jesus healed, when he healed the sick while he gave health, he also absorbed somewhere into himself. The weakness, the sickness he felt. He felt it. In other words, there was some kind of labor in this. We hear in the, in the Old Testament, by stripes we are healed. The culminating expression of this is the cross where Jesus does heal us most deeply but at what cost as he goes through the agony of the cross and that we are seeing and that we see him absorbing in himself but maybe in a lesser degree every time he heals someone he felt something of that he had to take in something of the pain we hear in the new testament that after he he had been involved in healing for a while. He had to go rest. Like it took it out of him. In the New Testament, we're told that Jesus in our high is our high priest. And, and in Hebrews, we're told that he's not a priest who does not feel, feel with us. He's touched with us. He's touched with us in our grief. And so when we go through the painful experiences, hard times we come to Jesus he feels that with us and he gives us grace in exchange for our pain he gives us strength in face of these difficulties when Saul of Tarsus was on his way to Damascus Jesus confronts him and says Saul Saul why persecutest thou me Jesus is being persecuted by Paul and his people. It says here is Jesus who was almost involuntarily reach out to his people. And the woman seeing that she could not be hidden. That's powerful language. She could not be hidden. Trembling came and fell before him and explained why she had touched him and how she had been healed and very importantly explained before the crowd you can come to jesus in secret you can come on the sly as it were but if we really going to come to christ sooner or later it has to come out 
Sooner or later, you're going to be in front of the crowd and announcing it. That's why, that's why when people join the church, do not let them do it in the pastor's study. Just sign a little piece of paper and that's it. You have to stand up in front of everybody and be asked the question, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Answer, yes I do. So people get nervous standing in front of in front of folks, but it's good for us. It's only then that Jesus gives us gives her the word of assurance. Assurance of salvation comes as we go through public with our faith. It's when we get this great sense that this is for real. Private faith, secret faith, mysterious hidden faith. In the closet, it can be faith, but it will never give you the sense of confidence. Jesus isn't going to leave you there. He may come in secret, but he's going to make it wide open. He doesn't do this to punish the women. This isn't some kind of rite of passage or any such thing. It's good for her. And so even though she came in secret, now the announcement is made. Are you like the women sneaking into the church in the back pew? Jesus will not leave you there. If you're really going to come to Christ, it's going to be. It's going to public. And it's right that it should be. When Jesus says to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Spirit. And you will be my witness. That's a public role. That's out front. And in essence, that is what this woman's been given here. When we say, when he says to her daughter, notice this, he says, your faith has saved you, not healed you. Both of these stories use the word safe, use the word saved you. He says that to the synagogue ruler about his daughter. He says to this woman, and it's not accidental, it's quite intentional that the salvation comes through the ministry of the church. It's by the word and the sacrament. It's by the preaching of the gospel and the touch that comes through this broken body and shed blood that he did that for us is this great, wonderful, healing, restoring power that leads us the conformity to Christ. And so while we was yet speaking, someone came from the synagogue ruler's house saying, your daughter's dead, no longer troubled the teacher. Can you imagine the vexation the synagogue ruler Jairus was going through at this, this delay? He's frustrated enough with the crowd. would like to be going on a dead sprint down, dead sprint down to his daughter because she's such in such grave circumstances, and every second counts. And he politely, with some degree of modesty and dignity, trying to get this Jesus down to his house. And all of a sudden, this whole little story interrupts, and he's just standing there. Can you imagine what he's going through under this anxiety? 
and then his worst fears are confirmed. They're too late. The daughters, the daughters died. And of course, the impression is that he would despair. We were hoping Jesus would come there in time. He has no concept of the resurrection of the dead. And now in his mind, he thinks it's all over. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. There's a little, little humor in that. Teachers can do, cannot do much. If Jesus were only a teacher, then it would be all over. If all Jesus could do was to give a good Sunday school lesson, then he would be as helpless as anyone else in the face of death. LBJ was famous for saying, for those who can do, do, and those who can't teach. But happily for him and happily for us, Jesus was more than a teacher. And so Jesus answered, do not fear, only believe. Deep faith chases out deep fear. Only believe. The Bible never says we are justified by faith alone. It never says that, but the Bible sends us that message repeatedly. And this is one of the many occasions. Only believe. Jairus, I know, was dark. Just trust me. Only believe. Let that fate display the fear that this is welling up right now inside of you. Only believe and she will be saved. Entering into the house, he did not permit anyone to go in with him except Peter, James, and John. The father of the child and the mother. Jesus does not do miracles for spectacles see that again and again. Certainly his miracles prove his authority and certainly prove the claims he made of himself, but he never does it for show. Like Three Ring Circus, the miracles and perform undeniably but modestly. Not trying to make a show out of it, he restricts access to the inner centrum to those who are most interested in it, his three inner circle disciples and the father and the mother. Everybody was weeping and wailing for her. Obviously they had been in the room, they had seen the lights go out, they had seen the skin turn pale, they had seen the breathing stop, they knew she was dead. Jesus says, do not weep for her. She's not dead, but only sleeps. And this seemed very brutal. And they laughed him to scorn. Our first impulse is to be cynical about these people. Go from weeping to laughing to scorn. I think we should be more sympathetic to these people. Because from a human perspective, what Jesus offered them was false hope. Just like many of our celebrities today. He, however, took her by the hand and says, Child, rise. 
and her breath returned and immediately she stood up and it tells us in the church that that is how Christ Christ's ministers to us word and sacrament word and touch the function of the sacrament in the ministry of the church is to confirm the word Calvin says the sacrament comes secondary as a sign and a seal we don't go to church just for the sacrament we go to hear the sermon the purpose of the sacrament is akin to God shaking hands with us confirms its truth assures us that he is actually in these words and making them real to us Parents were stunned and astonished with joy. And then he said, Oh, don't tell anyone what happened. Huh. And so I say to you today, just like the woman came to Jesus, came in a disguise, but she knew that he had power beyond human power. Pressed through to Jesus, despite her circumstances being a woman, despite the crowd, she pressed through. And I say to you, do not be fearful of what others will say, press through to Jesus. What if this woman had not pressed through? She would not have been healed. She would not have a testimony. Oh yes, come with your needs to Jesus. Yes, come, come to Jesus. He promised to be a burden bearer. Come to Jesus. He never leave you nor forsake you. Yes, come. Come, he's your rock in a weary land. Won't you come? Come to Jesus. You will find completeness in him. Won't you come? Won't you come? Will you come like the woman today? Will you, if you've been wandering in the wilderness of confusion, will you come with your concerns like the prodigal son find himself living among Gentiles? Won't you come back home? He eagerly waits you. Won't you come? Let's sing song he touched me shackled by a heavy burden needs load of guilt and shame then the hand of Jesus touched me and now I'm no longer the same. He touched me. 
Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And now I know he touched me and made me whole. Since I meet the blessed Savior, since he cleansed and made me whole, I will never cease to praise him. I'll shout it while eternity rolls. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened. And then I know he touched me and made me whole. Heavenly Father, we are indeed grateful for those wonderful accounts. A woman who comes and is healed by the mere touch of the hem of your garment and this little girl who's seen beyond hope, who was raised from the dead by the power of your word, we give you thanks that in a sense, in a time of worship, we can anticipate that remarkable experience of word and touch, which are intended to strengthen us. Give us courage, give us hope. Give us faith. Give us assurance. All these things, for all these things. We give you thanks. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. <laughs>